Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Fat Snacks. Fat Snacks' mission is to make foods that taste incredible and make a keto or low-carb diet more enjoyable and sustainable. Personally, I'll throw a pack of their chocolate chip cookies in my travel bag when on the road or away from my kitchen. Other options include double chocolate chip, lemony lemon, and peanut butter. Next time someone tells you a keto diet is too restrictive, blow their minds by telling them to head over to fatsnacks.com forward slash HPO. That's F-A-T-S-N-A-X dot C-O-M forward slash H-P-O and type in promo code H-P-O for 5% off their next order. Now back to the show. Thank you. I'm I'm always anxious to share my ideas with people. You know, they can take it for whatever it's worth and agree or disagree, but I'm always (laughs) share my ideas. Well, that's what it's about, getting that information out there and then uh, just seeing, you know, let, let's, let's uh, see who, who, who can learn from it and what we can, what we can understand. But uh, John, tell us a little bit about your background, just, just because there's a lot of people that may okay. not have heard about you before. Yeah, well, I, I grew up on a small farm, small dairy farm down in southwest Missouri, and I was fortunate enough to be able to go from there to go, go to the University of Missouri. And uh, I eventually uh, earned my bachelor's, master's, and PhD degrees from the University of Missouri in agricultural economics. I worked for three years between my master's and my PhD work with a large meat packing company, Wilson Meat Packing Company. So I had some experience there. But after I graduated in or after I got my PhD, then I worked for 30 years at four different universities. North Carolina State University, Oklahoma State University, University of Georgia, and then I came back to the University of Missouri for the last 11 years of of my academic career. And throughout that time, I was a a livestock marketing specialist the first half of that academic career. And then uh, the latter part of it, I became uh, department head at the University of Georgia and then finished up with sustainable agriculture. But I I think probably the most important thing Uh, that's happened to me from a professional standpoint is along about in the 1980s, which I still refer to as the farm financial crisis, I I came to the realization that the agricultural economics that I had been taught and and that I was passing on to to farmers in my role as as an extension person, extension outreach person of the university, uh, that was the promotion of what I now call industrial agriculture, telling farmers that Farming had to be a bottle line business, that it couldn't just be, a, farming couldn't be a way of life anymore, that uh, they had to be prepared to specialize and standardize, consolidate into larger farms. And I was one of the 
people that were saying, you know, if you want to survive in farming, then you're going to have to be prepared to get, get bigger or you're going to get out. And the whole idea was is that we were going to make agriculture more efficient. We were going to bring time cost to production, and it would create economic opportunities for farmers. The progressive, innovative farmers would have an opportunity to profit from the lower production costs. Uh, that this would be good for rural communities, uh, for those thriving farmers would contribute to the rural community. And, and so it was going to be good for society overall, because if we brought down the cost of food, then we would make good food affordable to everyone. So it, it really made a lot of sense. And we chose kind of, sort of this industrial model of specialized, standardized consolidation, which is typically what happens in an industrial situation. We basically industrialized agriculture. During the 1980s, I came to the realization that as these farmers got bigger, uh, we were expanding production faster than the market. That meant that some farmers had to fail in order for others to succeed. And that's what we really saw in the 1980s. We saw a big expansion in production during the 1970s, highly profitable prices. So-called experts like myself were out telling farmers, you know, that the export market's gonna grow indefinitely. And you need to get out and take advantage of this opportunity to add to the size of your farm, buy new equipment, become more industrialized. And when we got into the 1980s, then the export markets dried up. We got into a global uh, recession, a, a domestic recession, and farmers were caught with uh, record high uh, debts at, at all time high interest rates because of the inflationary period of the 70s. And they simply couldn't pay off their debts. We had bankruptcies and foreclosures. And at that time, I moved to the University of Georgia as the head of the Department of Extension Agricultural Economics. And we saw several farmers in, in Georgia that actually committed suicide when they, when they lost their farm. You know, I, I didn't realize it at the time, you know, but the farm to them wasn't just a business. It was such a big part of their life that they couldn't face losing it. So I came to the realization then by going out and working with farmers face-to-face -face across the tables that the kind of agriculture I'd taught and been teaching simply wasn't working and it wasn't going to work in the future. It wasn't good for the farmers. Rural communities were drying up that depended upon those farm families, not only to shop on Main Street, but you know, also to have children to keep the schools open and go to church and do all the things it takes to build a community. So rural communities were dying. And then I became aware of what farming fence row to fence row, as we called it, and taking out the fence rows we're doing in terms of soil erosion, maximum yields we're doing to a pollution of the air and water with agricultural, chemical, and biological waste. And I came to the conclusion it's simply not sustainable. You can't continue to do it. And thankfully, that's when the sustainable agriculture movement was kind of coming onto the national scene. And USDA just had some funds for programs in sustainable agriculture. And I was able to get a, a grant out of the initial money that allowed me to go back to Missouri and to focus the rest of my career and the time since on dealing with issues of sustainability and agriculture that meets the basic economic needs of farm families, but also an agriculture that allows farmers to be responsible members of the community and to contribute to viable really rural communities and also to be good stewards of the land and the natural environment. And that's what sustainability is about. It's balancing the economic, the ecological and social. And that's what I've continued to work on since I retired in 2000. Yeah, John, I think like, um, 
one of the reasons I'm excited to have you on the show is, uh, you know, I, when, when we got you recommended by some of our listeners, I went over to your website and read a lot of the, the essays you have featured on there. And I would encourage our listeners to go check that out at uh, johnnicker.com and we'll post that to the show notes too. But um, I mean, you have a lot of good stuff on there that I've, uh, I haven't read all of it, but I've read, read a few of them and a lot of it kind of makes, makes sense from the economic standpoint on the farming side of things to me. Cause when I think about just holistically, when you get these large kind of conglomerates that can tease their profit margins down to such a narrow amount, you essentially remove the potential of any small local kind of mom and pop shop, or in this case, small farmers to be able to kind of make a go of it competitively because they can't necessarily afford the large capital requirements to be able to compete in a market that large or that requires that much uh, um, tight margins. Am I, am I kind of on the right page of what you were looking at with that stuff? Yeah, it, it, what it is is this, this industrial model, a specialized, standardized, consolidated, is, is a natural consequence. You specialize in doing fewer things, you can do them more efficiently. But once you specialize, then you have to kind of standardize the processes and, you know, so that it all fits together. And once you specialize, then you can, you can routinize and you can mechanize a large part of it. So that's what we've done in, in agriculture. We went away from uh, diversified crop and livestock farms, as our farm was when I was growing up, to more specialization in either crops or livestock, a specific crop or livestock or specific phase. And then once we've done that, then you can mechanize and routinize the whole process. So it takes less, there's less management per acre, less, less decision making per animal because you're operating it more like a factory. And then you can consolidate it into the large operations. And getting around to the profit margins you're talking about, the economic advantage of the larger operations is, is not so much, you know, the, the margin of profit per head or per, per acre that you're getting out of the industrial operation, but you can manage so many more acres and so many more head. Whereas, um, let's say a hog producer that would have uh, oh, a, a 50 sow uh, or a hundred sow operation might have a capacity of a thousand hogs on the farm. Well, that same farmer in one of these large confinement animal feeding operations or CAFOs, one person might be able to manage 5,000 or 10,000 hogs. And so even if you're making less profit per head on the hogs, you're making more profit because you're managing more land. And, and with the large mechanizations of crop farming operations, then whereas, uh, you know, when I was growing up, a 160 or 240 acre farm was about all you could handle with the equipment at that particular time. But now we specialize in these operations. So you've just got one crop like your corn or maybe corn and soybeans. You can use the same combine and same equipment. And so you can go out and farm thousands of acres. So that's where the advantage comes from. But I think there's, a, there's an important point. There is a slight advantage. There's two basic points I want to make, though, that in terms of what the consumers pay for the final product, any advantage for the industrial system is, is basically negligible at this point because the farmers only get less than 15% of what we pay for food in the grocery store. So, so let's say if it costs 50% more, which is a big difference, I'm not talking about 50% advantage in it, I'm talking about maybe 3 or 4% advantage, but it's 50% more. If you take that to the retail level, that's 15% of the farmer, 50% of the farmer's 
15%, which is only 7.5%. So between 7 and 8%, even if it costs you 50% more. So that's a, an important part. The other is, is that industrial model of agriculture is a very risky way of carrying out an economic activity because you're specializing in one thing rather than diversification. And you, you see this in the large operations. You know, if you have a disease come through or a drought come through, it, it gets that one crop. It's gotten the whole enterprise is gone. It's not like a diversified farm where you have a low yield in one crop, but a good yield in another, or you've got livestock and crops. If you've got cheap grain, you, you know, you make the money on the livestock. If you've got high priced grain, then it offsets the livestock. So it's a highly risky business. And then also, when you concentrate large numbers of animals in these confinement operations, you have a disease breakout. It wipes out the whole, the whole herd. It wipes out the whole batch. Rather than losing a few head of hogs, you're losing thousands. For example, in Iowa, we're a big uh, egg producing state here in Iowa where I live now. And recently, or a couple of years ago, there was a disease come through the, the laying operations and it wiped out, I don't know how many millions or or more of the, the birds in here. Um, so it just wiped the whole thing out. Well, the thing that makes the industrial agriculture continue to work under those highly risky conditions is that we, the taxpayer, basically share the risk. We, we pick up the cost of the risk. Crop producers can get crop insurance now that not only insures the crop, but insures the price and basically insures a profit. And we as the taxpayers are picking up 60% of the, of the cost of that crop insurance program, in addition to the government's also paying for the administration of the program. So they're basically propping up and subsidizing us. In the case of the, the chickens that were lost, I, I figured up what the government had spent, our taxpayer money, what we had spent, and, and we paid $14 a bird, which is you know, practically the whole market value. We, we 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 bought all of those chickens that that died basically uh we gave the companies that lost it that amount of money and we sent people in the government sent people in to clean up the facilities and disinfect and basically get them back into business and we do this over and over again whether it's uh, guaranteed if you want to go out and build a capo for example that large confinement animal feeding operations you may need to borrow a million million and a half dollars or maybe even more well, you can get a government guaranteed loan that the bank will quickly loan you the money because the government, us, we, we guarantee 80 to 90% of that loan. So they're not taking any risk. If, if you go in as an organic farmer and say, well, I want to start a CSA, or I'm going to sell at farmer's markets, or I've joined a food hub or whatever, you have a hard time getting a loan, you know, for $150,000. So there's a whole range of ways in which we as government kind of support and prop up the industrial system, which makes it increasingly difficult for, for those that, are, that aren't forming farming according to these industrial models to compete. And it's not just a matter of the economy of scale advantage. I, I argue that those are relatively small. In fact, the studies that I've seen says that we could transition from the current industrial system to a sustainable agricultural system and, and over time, the cost of food might be maybe anywhere from 8 to 12% higher. And I would argue within 20 years, it'd probably be cheaper than it's going to be with industrial. But, but even if you're talking about, uh, you know, 8 to 12%, we, 
we, we saw food prices go up more than that in 2008, 2009, when we started burning up 40% of our corn crop for ethanol rather than using it to produce uh, feed and using it to produce food. So, you know, the economic advantage is, is pretty small for the industrial agriculture. And I would argue that if we had a fundamental change in government programs, that would encourage the transition from industrial to sustainable agriculture, um, that in fact, we would, you know, we would find that the, that, that economic advantage would disappear and we would see more and more people um, kind of getting out of industrial agriculture and moving to sustainable systems and we create opportunities for more and more young people who want to farm and there's a lot of them out here, would give them an opportunity to go out and farm and make a decent living on the farm. Hey, John, let me, uh, just some excellent points in there. And I want to just, you know, the major question that I think most people have is, you know, we've got this, you know, industrial system, economies of scale, we're producing a lot of food for a lot of people, albeit there are many downsides, as, as you've pointed out, and many people, other people have with regard to pollution, herbicides, pesticides, animal, animal welfare issues, illness, so on and so forth. And so, the question then becomes, and we've had guys like, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with guys like Joel Salatin and some of these other right. folks that are big in the regenerative farming movement. And they're saying that they believe that, you know, doing it their way, their system, it's, it's, it requires less input. You know, you don't need all the, the chemicals right. and, and, and the machinery and the equipment. But the question becomes, what is the yield? And do we have the resources? Do we have the, the range land? Do we have the arable land to do a, do a you know, a, mostly regenerative or sustainable agriculture and still feed the amount of people that we're going to need to feed. Is that, is that feasible? Because a lot of people out there, the naysayers will say that, no, you can't do that, particularly when it comes to animal agriculture. You know, you have to, uh, you know, it's just not sustainable to have regeneratively raised animals uh, and being able to feed the amount of people we're going to need to feed. So what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, th I think that's just one excuse to continue doing what we're doing, because I think if you look at the, the facts of the situation, for example, in the United States, uh, we're exporting about 20% of the agricultural products we produce here. And in, in, in Iowa, for example, we've had a tremendous increase in pork production in the last 10 or 15 years. Practically all that's gone into the export market. That's not to feed people here. And the other fallacy is, is we're not feeding the hungry people in these other countries with what we're exporting, whether it's feed grains such as corn and soybeans, or whether it's, it's the livestock products such as pork or beef or chicken that we are exporting to other countries. That's going to the increasingly affluent classes of people in other countries that are moving up through the income scale where they can afford to and want to eat more meat and animal products. So we're not feeding the hungry people in those countries. In fact, of the, of the exports, Less than less than one percent goes to the 19 hungriest countries in the world. So, you know, if we were really interested in feeding the hungry people of the world, we would be producing food that would go to those hungry people and figure out how to get it there. And then, when you, I think it's just total hypocrisy to say that we're interested in feeding the world when we're burning up 40 percent of our corn crop in our cars. The reality is, as long as we rely on markets, as long as we allow market prices to determine who gets to eat and who doesn't get to eat, the hungry people will never be fed. I don't care what kind of agriculture you have or how much you produce. It's, it's well known statistically in the international area that we're producing more than enough food globally right now 
for everyone in the world have more than a 2,000 calorie diet, which is more than many people need and too much for some of us. It's a matter of getting it to the people. Another thing that, that's not commonly understood, but it's been clearly documented in United Nations and other international documents, that 70 to 80% of the people in the world today are not fed by industrial agriculture. They're fed by small family farms, most of those we would call subsistence farms in other countries. And then there's also a global movement in agroecology, which is one kind of dimension of sustainability, agroecology, holistic management, biodynamic farming, a whole range of those kind of fall into this balance I was talking about. That, that through, through these kinds of farming systems, the research has shown in Africa, South America, and other places that we can double or triple yields on these lower farms, these, you know, these smaller subsistence farms, because they're, they're basically, you know, a little bit beyond farming with oxen, maybe, or hand tools or things of that nature, with, without industrializing those farms, without going to specialization, mechanization, or whatever. And then you've got viable rural communities like we used to have here before, you know, we industrialized agriculture. And then you can have viable local markets where people produce and change with each other, and some of it may go outside the country and some into export. But, but right now we're using industrial agriculture and we're t basically forcing these people off the land, these small farmers off the land and replacing them with producing commodities for exports to the richest countries. So, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not feeding the hungry people of the world today with industrial agriculture. And, and if we worked with those 70 to 80% to help them increase their yields, let's say if they doubled the yields or production on those farms, uh, without industrial agriculture, that would be a hundred and what a hundred and uh, let's say seventy, one hundred and forty percent of today's population. We could feed even without industrial agriculture. We we could just close up the big factory farms and let people you know feed off them. Our our problem in the United States, a lot of people look at, it, is our problem here is not productivity. We're producing more than we're consuming here. We're wasting about forty percent of the food that we produce here because it's you know, some of us can afford to waste it uh, and, and bid it away from, outprice it away from, you know, the poor people that can't afford enough to eat. So, so our problem here isn't production. Our problem here is sustainability. Our problem here is to stop depleting the natural productivity of the soil and start stop polluting the, the water and the air and rural communities and creating dead zones and, you know, doing all the other things that we know now, scientifically, clearly documented, are a threat to the natural environment and public health. We need to address those questions of sustainability and then help the other people of the world increase their productivity because many areas they do need to do that. And it would be improving their quality of life and improving our quality of life as well. Now that's, I mean, that's a fascinating statistic, you know, that 70 to 80% of the world's right. farms are small, you know, you know, very, very uh, technologically primitive farms that are, that are, you know, just uh, uh, a stone's throw away from pulling oxen through the fields. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's fascinating. Uh, there is uh, a belief that um, we need to do away with animal agriculture, that right. we need to go to a completely plant-based uh, food sustainability system that's being promoted by people you know, not surprisingly, that have these sort of 
fake meat companies out there. Uh, have you sort of examined any of those claims and have you sort of yeah. have any opinion on, on that particular topic? Yeah, I think this has been going on for quite some time. And, and you know, I, I eat meat or eat animal products, but I think everyone should have a right to eat what they choose to eat. So I have, you know, I have a lot of friends that are vegetarians, have a few uh, vegans and, and they're good people. And I think everybody should, you know, do what they feel comfortable with from an ethical, moral standpoint. But I think it is fundamentally an ethical issue and, and not really an ecological issue as most people would talk about it. So I think what you're, when you talk about, okay, we do away with animal agriculture because of primarily the methane production that comes from, from the animals that are out on grass. But I would argue most of the emissions that we have today are due to the fact that we've got these animals concentrated in large confinement animal feeding operations as opposed to them uh, being out on grass. But the important thing is from the standpoint of sustainability, every healthy natural ecosystem and sustainability, the regenerative uh, capacity to you know, continue to food, food production indefinitely depends upon the integrity of that natural ecosystem, the ability of the plants to sequester solar energy and to store it, you know, store nutrients and store other things in the, in the healthy soils and this sort of thing. So, so it depends upon the health of that natural ecosystems, the soils, the plants, the animals, all functioning in relationship with each other, a harmonious relationship. And in every healthy ecosystem, you have something that, that serves the function of animals. In other words, this is another point I make to people who are vegetarian or vegan. Every living thing, every biological being lives by eating the, the carcass, the tissue that was once another living thing, whether it's a plant, an animal, or seed, or whatever it is. And, and it so happens that in every ecosystem, you have things that eat other living things, and then they digest those living things, and they make their products, their manure, if you will, whether it's a bacteria or fungi in the soil or whatever, they make that available to another living thing, which regenerates and keeps that whole system renewing. And so when, when you're talking about in the soil, then you've got earthworms and various other things that reprocess the soil all the time and keep it healthy. And I would argue if, in order to have a sustainable regenerative farming system, then, then you need animals to, to basically harvest the, the crops that people can't eat directly. And that's the big mistake we're making now. We're producing basically what could be food grains you know, and corn and soybeans, and we're turning it into animal feed. What the, the role of animals, like the ruminants that Joel Salatin talks about, the role of animals is to eat the stuff that we can't eat, to eat the grasses and the goats, the forbs, and various other things, and sheep can eat other things that we can't eat. And, and they process those things and put them through a digestive process. So when they come out in the form of manure, and those animals are out on the land, and then you have other kind of animals like the dung beetles and other things that are serving their animal function of taking that manure and burying it in the ground and restoring the whole system. So I would argue that it, I'm not going to argue it's impossible to have a sustainable farming system without animals, uh, but I think it would be much more difficult, and I don't see any particular reason for saying that we have that we need to get rid of animals if, if we want to maintain a sustainable, regenerative, restorative kind of living system. If if you look at the places like there's a, 
um, a new book, relatively new book out of Australia called The Call of the Reed Canary. And it's all about what I would call restorative agriculture. He calls it regenerative agriculture. It's where they're taking basically worn out land in Australia that's been farmed to the point where it's basically dead and the water cycle's broken, the energy cycle's broken. And they're going in and restoring that land back to health and productivity and restore the water cycle, the mineral cycle, and the productivity of the land. But in every case, there's animals involved. In every case, they go in and restore some sort of plants up and the animals come in and the animals impact this whole system uh, on the international level and even the national level, holistic resource management. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that. Alan Savory had a big TED talk that was very popular on this whole thing of talking about the essential role of animals in restorative and regenerative agriculture. I'm not arguing that we need to produce as much meat as we do today. I, I would argue that a, a sustainable agriculture, we wouldn't be feeding large numbers of animals in confinement at all. That, that part, that sector would go away. And, and we would adjust livestock production to, to the, the number of livestock that was needed to maintain the health of the natural ecosystem. And we would adjust our eating habits to the capacity of the land in a healthy natural ecological system. Uh, the health of the land and the, and the regenerative capacity in the long run sustainability of productivity. We would look at nature. We can't change the laws of nature. We can ignore them for a while, but they're always going to come back. If we violate a law of nature, sooner or later we'll bear the consequences. We need to start looking at it and saying, look, we can't change the laws of nature. So we need to adjust the way we farm and, and the way that we, the food that we eat, we need to adjust that to accommodate these basic laws and rules of nature that are essential for long-run sustainabilities of these degenerative systems and then adjust our eating and our, our patterns accordingly if we're safely talking about sustainability. From a, I, I, you know, I won't dwell on this, but from a purely ethical standpoint, I, I feel that everything that's here is here for a purpose. And I think the, the purpose of of some things is to provide food for other things. They have a purpose within themselves, but part of the purpose is to provide food for other things. And I think we humans, you know, I've said, I'm getting old and I've told people, I said, I, I, I wish that it was possible that I could just be composted <laughs> because <laughs> my, my, my body is meant to provide food for organisms in the soil. And if I have to, if I have to, uh, you know, be cremated or put in a concrete box, you know, I'm depriving nature of that, of that cycle of life. And so that's where I see animals as an important part of that cycle of life. And every living thing lives off of the once uh, living carcass of another living thing. And that's just the reality of life and death. Yeah. You know, John, you actually, it, when you touched on it at the very end there, I think uh, I've always wondered about that, like throwing people in caskets and burying them. It's like just kind of a microcosm picture of how as humans we've attempted to remove ourselves from the cycle yeah. that's at place here. And it's just kind of one more example of that. But if I can attempt to maybe kind of summarize what you said, uh, the way I kind of see it is like, if we look at ruminants and we look at animal ag as like this big input to like the carbon cycle and ignore the whole cycle, like the sinks that you refer to, Removing that part of it maybe makes some very small short-term reductions in the output, but to me, it's, that's kind of just with the current system of 
of uh, monocropping and industrialized agriculture, we're essentially just kicking the ball down the road and giving ourselves an even bigger problem later um, to kind of appease the current perceived or otherwise need to kind of reduce kind of some of the outputs we're doing right now. Uh, and I think that shows up with like desertification and things like that when we see like the soil get depleted and clearing the land of all but one specific uh, resource to come from it. Am I kind of right with that summary? Yeah, I think 100%. What I'm saying is we need to fundamentally change the farming system and that carbon sequestration and uh, methane, uh, dealing with methane emissions in the atmosphere. The, those, those excesses are symptoms of a sick system, not, not specific practices within the system, but it's symptoms of the whole system being out of balance. We're putting more in than we're taking out. And, and we need to balance that whole system, not just in carbon, not just in methane, but in everything else. And when you, you focus on just one thing, like, like carbon, they talk about carbon markets. I'm in the process of writing a paper on carbon markets, but they talk about that. When you focus on one thing, like we're going to, you know, create carbon markets for carbon that's sequestered in the soil or something, then you will find that there will evolve a specialized system that's particularly efficient in terms of sequestering carbon because you've made that profitable. And, and you will find that in some respect, it will be out of balance because you've removed that one thing and focused on it and you haven't dealt with the interconnection between what you've changed and the rest of the system. Uh, for example, I was watching a YouTube video today and it was talking about someone genetically engineering crops so that they had huge roots relative to the top and said, okay, this is going to sequester this and we'll genetically modify this and this and this to get this larger, smaller bottom, I mean, larger root structure on it. And on the surface, it might sound real good, but, but I could envision, okay, what would you end up with? You, you, would, you would end up with big corporations going to other countries of the world where they can get land relatively cheap or get it free from the government because they'll take it away from people that are on these small subsistence farms. And you will have large plantations put in these genetically modified crops that will drive people off the farms and leave people hungry because now you're sequestering carbon and the corporations now can count this as carbon credits and various other things to meet their objective. And it means they can go on and do industrial agriculture in the U.S. because they're sequestering carbon off somewhere else. I, you know, I don't know if that would be exactly the outcome, but that, that's what invariably happens when you focus on just trying to deal with one piece of a problem that's inherently integrated with all the other things that are going on in natural ecosystems. And, and anything we do basically to to kind of create the illusion that we can somehow fix a, an industrial system. Uh, ultimately, you know, my opinion is going to lead to frustration and failure because the industrial system is, is inherently mechanistic in nature. It kind of came out of the uh, Enlightenment age when we saw the world as a big machine and we were separate from that and we manipulate that machine. And that's the way industries are built, specialized, standardized, mechanized, control, that whole system. But, but, it, but agriculture functions within the context of living systems, not mechanisms, but organisms. The farm itself is a, a living organism with all these components, the farm, but it functions within a community and within a society that are living and, and you know, within the whole of humanity as a living biological system. And when you've got a, you're depending upon a, a mechanism as a biological system, then you're always having to tinker with that mechanism. It's always in conflict. With, with the larger 
community and the larger ecosystem within which it functions. And what sustainability is about is, is creating an organismic uh, way of thinking, looking at the farm and the soil and plants, the animals as, as organisms. And these are holes with all of these independent sort of, I mean, interdependent living parts to it. And so you, now you've got a farming system that's functioning in harmony with the larger community, which also helps build the community and the community supports the agriculture within a society that's a living system. And, you, and the whole thing functions in harmony. Right now, as long as we continue to pursue this sort of mechanistic vision of, of, food, of farming and food production within an inherently biological living organismic system, we're going to continue to be confronted with one conflict after another. Every problem we solve is going to create more, probably more problems than we solve, or at least another problem. Hey, John, let's, let me talk on, on a global scale, because here in the United States, I mean, and many people don't realize how fortunate we are. We have very good agricultural land relative to other parts of the world. Right. I mean, we are blessed with the, you know, the, the, the plains and, and some of that stuff. Um, and there is, uh, well, here in the U.S., I mean, I, I see there's concern with urban sprawl where a lot of the very, you know, very potentially productive farmland is being gobbled up by concrete right. and parking lots and trapped in, you know, malls because, you know, the developers, you know, they, they, they set a premium on that land where it could be farmland, but they have to pay, the farmer has to pay the price of what it would be for a developer to develop a housing development right. and they can't afford to do that. So that's a, that's an issue. But right. if we talk about, cause you talked about matching the, the consumption of food with what the natural sort of ecosystem will support. And I think that makes sense, but Worldwide, does that does that hold up? Is there going to need? Or, I mean, yeah. there's going to have to be some exports and in, imports going around someplace because there's people in yeah. northern Alaska that you know. Well, I right. mean, you could argue they can they can eat, live like they've always lived, and they just yeah. live on, you know, eating basically yeah. animals that they yeah. can get. But how does how do you how do you see yeah. that the worldwide interaction with this sort of thing happening? Yeah. Um, but to, to your first question, you know, on the urbanization and urban sprawl and things of that nature, I think eventually we're going to have to go to uh, land planning issues, you know, such as uh, they have around uh, uh, Toronto, Canada, the Green Belt, where you maintain some of this farming land out there. But, uh, but you're talking about accommodating what nature will produce. Well, what I just said a while ago, okay, 70, 80 percent produced by the smaller farmers and without with sustainable agriculture systems, with agroecological systems that function in harmony with nature, we could double and probably triple the production on those farms. So, so it's not a matter of having to go to this industrial system in order to produce enough food. We, we know that that can be done. The difference is th there's no profit for the big agribusiness, multinational agribusiness corporations in terms of helping small farmers increase their own productivity by ways that that deal primarily with their, their management ability and their knowledge of a particular farm and a particular farming system. There's nothing to be sold there. That's like you talk to Joel Salatin, you know what makes Joel's uh, farming system works is it's intensively managed. They put together all these different components. He has a particular location, a particular market, but it takes a lot of thinking, a lot of creativity, but it doesn't buy many inputs from the agribusiness corporations. And so, you know, that's, that's what's concerning them more in terms of, of increasing productivity from that standpoint. Now, 
from the standpoint of what you say, you, you know, not exporting, I'm not s suggesting at all that there shouldn't be exports from places that have surplus and imports in places that other that, that have less. But I am suggesting that we need trade policies, which are consistent with basic economic theory. And I was an economics professor for 30 years, and I'm still an emeritus professor in economics. But basic economic theory says for trade to be beneficial, it must be mutually beneficial for both parties that are involved. And one of the conditions for that is that each party in a trade has to be sovereign to the extent that they can choose to or not to trade, depending upon how they perceive their their individual interests. And that's what we have to have. There's a whole global movement, like I talked about the global movement in agroecology. There's a global movement called food sovereignty. And, and the, it's, it's, I don't remember, 180 some countries have signed into this and it's probably the largest global agricultural movement around, but it's basically what they call a peasant farmer movement, but it's these, these smaller family farms that I talked about that are feeding most of the people. But the, the food sovereignty movement, kind of the basic principle, is that everyone has a basic human right to culturally appropriate, safe, sus wholesome, sustainably produced food. And, and everyone has a right to determine their own food system. In other words, how it's produced, how the animals are treated, how the land is treated, the whole, the whole system. And there's other things that go with that. But food sovereignty is not food self-sufficiency. It simply says that you have the capacity to choose whether you want to trade, not whether you want to trade. So food sovereignty would only require that if you're in a place where you can't uh, produce all your food, or let's say you can't, and you're in uh, northern parts where you can't get fruits and vegetables and things of that nature, what you would do is simply connect with other people in other places, and, and you would arrange mutually beneficial exchange of products in some ways between those two communities so that you're ensuring the integrity of it. See, you can get food from anywhere. You could get food from South America. We used to get our coffee from South America when, it, when the coffee company down there was run by a small cooperative. Uh, you can get food from another country. And as long as you know that it's produced in a way that's consistent with your core social, ethical, ecological values, then, then you, you still have, have maintained the integrity of the food system. In fact, I see, that's what I see the food system of the future is, is a um, you know, regional, national, global networks uh, of community, local community-based uh, systems that are all tied together through personal relationships of trust. There, there's a sense within this community that we know how this community produces the food and what their values are and their values are consistent with ours. So we, we trade with them. We, so they become part of our food sovereignty. We have these agreements with them and I could see, you know, a whole global network of, of local regional uh, bioregion is an important concept. I think where you, where you manage similarly within a biological region and then you have standards of sustainability that fit that region. And then, Sustainable bioregions can trade with other sustainable bioregions, and then you're ensuring the integrity of it. The, 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 the important part of local and what I'm talking about here is, is that basically you're, you're substituting relationships of confidence and trust uh, for these transactional relationships of economic transactions. Economic transactions are, are impersonal, they're instrumental, and they're individual. 
and, and there's some parts of our life in which that functions very well. And I certainly wouldn't want to do away with markets. We need to restore the competitiveness of our markets, but I wouldn't want to do away with markets. But there are other aspects of our life that are, that are personal. And there's other aspects that are ethical and moral in terms of what we eat and how the land's grown and how the animals are treated and the whole range of those things. That's, those aren't economic values. They may have economic values attached to them somewhere or other, but with those economic values there are rooted in moral and ethical values. As I talked about a while ago, people that, that don't eat meat or they don't eat, uh, uh, don't eat in animal products, that's, a, that's an ethical kind of moral decision. It's not a purely market decision. And, and, you know, how we treat the land in many cases is, uh, you know, if we're concerned about sustainability in future generations, there's, there's no economic interest in doing anything for anybody of some future generation somewhere. You'll never get anything back as an individual. You know, for me to make an investment more than, with more than a 10-year payoff is just throwing my money away because I won't be here, you know. <laughs> so it, that's just the reality. So that's just what we're... You know, we, we need to have those, those personal connections. Even if we're not connected closely, we have friends. We need to have this shared ethical and social values that kind of cement and bring our food system together and bring our whole economy together in, in order to ensure sustainability. Yeah, John, I, I think um, what you said at the end there is kind of a point of confusion for a lot of people. I think, like, sometimes when I'm just looking at, like, the theories of economics and like where people stand on some of this stuff between like, you know, how much should we regulate certain things versus deregulate things. A lot of times I see people kind of looking through two different scopes and then not crossing paths and kind of what they're discussing. And sometimes I think people take the view of a local economy and they try to project that onto like a national scale economy. So like it's pretty easy to regulate say a local economy within itself without a whole lot of government regulation. Right. Um, I mean, if, you know, the local farm is polluting the local pond, it becomes quite apparent to the community very early and you can kind of respond. Whereas if a giant industry is polluting a lake up in northern Minnesota, it may be years, if not decades, before I finally find out about that and decide to change my consumer behavior. Right. So can you talk to us just a little bit about what's the difference between, say, a need to government re use the government to regulate these larger right. national scale economic things versus say the more local and then is that reason another reason i guess to come more local with our consumer choices well i think when we get into grades and standards and and regulations and things of this nature it it's a reflection of the fact that that we're that we've gone to more and more to kind of uh, economic transactions which in fact are impersonal when you go to the grocery store and and, and buy something to eat, unless you look closely at the label, you might be able to find out what state it come from or, or what state it was manufactured in. You might be able to find if it come from another country, but you don't know what farm that come from. And you don't know if you go buy the same brand, it'll come from the same farm or anything else. Again, you don't know where, how that was produced other than that it's in that store and it may be a certain grade or it had to meet certain health inspection. And that's because that transaction is impersonal. If you knew the person that was doing it, there wouldn't be any reason for the package and the grade and everything else because you'd say, okay, I trust this person. I know that they can produce safe food and it's wholesome food and they grow it the way I like it. You can get it. So just the fact that you have grade standards and regulations, if we want to talk about regulations, the regulations are there to kind of enforce a society's 
the intention of the regulation is kind of enforce society's social and cultural values to constrain the market so that we don't do things through impersonal transactions that we as a as a nation or at, who, at a state, whoever's making the law, that we collectively as a state or as a nation don't approve of certain things, then we have certain regulations to try to regulate the industry and we have certain restrictions and things you can't do and things you can do. But all of that is a consequence of the impersonal nature of those economic transactions. You don't, you don't have direct information of what's going on here. You just buy something, you sell something. And that's all that's going on. And I keep telling farmers all the time, they're complaining about regulations. And I say, you're not going to do away with regulations in agriculture or anywhere else until you reestablish the confidence and trust of your consumers to the point, your customers to the point, where they, you don't have to be regulated because they're regulating. Again, if you talk to Gerald Salatin, I'm sure he, he talked about this to his customers, you know, they, they trust Joel to produce good food for them, and it doesn't have to be standardized or regulated or anything else. Now, where I think we need to go in terms of, of food sovereignty with local communities, I, I think if you look at what the essential role of a, of a federal or national government is, it's, it's basically to ensure some level of basic human rights of people, to make sure that people aren't discriminated again for a whole range of reasons. And I would argue it, it, we need for the government to support kind of the rights of future generations, which means that that becomes the justification for environmental protection, conservation, regeneration, is you're, you're not just ensuring rights of this generation, but you're ensuring rights of generations of the future. I think that's the role of the federal government. Uh, I would argue if you look at different countries around the world, there's not agreement necessarily on what those basic rights are. But if you look at our country, I quote quite often from the Declaration of Independence, it says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all are created equal and we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then it says to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So it, it, it says there that people have founded this country. They said that's the fundamental purpose of government. Okay, now, again, beyond that, that's what we should do across the United States it, at the federal level. Beyond that, if nobody's rights are being violated, I think we need to devolve government to the lowest level to get things done. We, we ought to go to the individual community, individual bioregion, let's say, in terms of the sustainability of agriculture and say, what makes sense here? What, what would be logical organic standards here? What would be larger kind of sustainability practices in this region? What, what, what do we need to do here in this region? And leave that up to the local people. And then those practices will be ensured because there is personal knowledge, as you said before. And, and the people within that region will know to, to maintain the integrity of that system then they have to be ensured that everybody in that system, all the farmers are kind of following practices. You don't need, they might write their local rules and regulations and things of that nature, but it's basically ensured through these kind of personal relationships rather than the impersonal government. I, I agree that's the reason we still have hunger in this country is because we, we've reduced it to kind of an economic relationship between the people that are paying for food assistance programs and the people that are receiving it. There's no sense of personal connectedness. You know, in, in this country, we've got about 16% of our children, about one in six children in this country that live in food insecure homes. 
if, if we had to live down the street from those children or next door to those children, th then we would have the concern and say, we're not going to tolerate this. But they're just statistics. And so we're paying into food assistance programs. But And then the people that receive the assistance, there's no sense, well, somebody's given this to me. I have to be responsible. I can't cheat the system or whatever. Uh, there's no shame in asking for food. But, but it's the impersonal relationship. That, that leads to that disconnectedness. And that's what the problem with regulations and problems with laws is that it's the impersonal relationship between the government and the person that's regulated, and they bend the regulations and, and twist the regulations. And increasingly in agriculture, where we have the, the political impact of the large corporate agribusinesses, they use that economic power to, for political power to change the rules of the game, to remove constraints on what they can do and what they can't do in order to increase their profitability. And so they've actually taken over the role of the people in terms of, of setting the law, setting the regulations, and they do it in such a way that removes the constraints which governments must place on, on impersonal kind of transactions as this we have in the economy. I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. The economy is tremendously important and nobody would want to go back to where we were even 50 years ago in terms of the material well-being and the technology for medical and communications and a whole range of things. It's just that the economy has to function within the bounds of a socially equitable and just uh, society. Now for a word from our sponsors. What are you doing with that X3 bar? What's your experience been so far? Yeah, it's uh, it's been great so far. I've been using it quite a bit at home. It's saved me a couple trips to the gym. I've been mostly doing deadlifts with it, and I've actually brought it on a couple trips with me too because it's pretty easy to throw in, uh, into a rolling duffel and kind of bring with you on the road. Yeah, I mean, I found particularly the deadlift, um, you know, I've been a pretty decent deadlifter, and, you know, I've pulled over 700 pounds, and I know when I use this big orange band that uh, – it's pretty tough. It, it actually, for a band workout, it definitely simulates the heavy lifting. I think you're right. It's uh, very nicely suited for travel, for sure. It's a good, uh, certainly accessory exercise for many people. And I think a lot of people can use it as their primary uh, training tool, depending upon what their goals are. But I think the key I found is you've got to use it as designed. And that includes uh, really pushing to failure. And when you get there, you really know it. It definitely gets your heart rate up, even though even things like bicep curls, I find my heart rate jacked up after doing that. So I think I've been pretty impressed with the product overall uh, in certain situations for sure. Awesome. And uh, Dr. Jakish has a uh, poster that comes with it that gives you a kind of a breakdown of kind of the moves and different lifts that he addresses with it too. Head over to x3bar.com for products, videos, and training programs. Now back to the show. John, yeah. let me let me let me jump in. Um, two things. So one one phenomenon that's happening not only in the United States but worldwide is we see this mass exodus from the rural areas. Everybody is clustering in these urban centers. We see that eighty percent of the population, you know, in the U.S. is kind of coastal city. And yeah. so when you talk about these local sustainable regions, realizing that the majority of the people don't live in agricultural lands, and so you have to figure out how do you how do you feed New York City, you know, or, or, you know, I think those issues are there. And then I want to, you know, it sounds like, you know, maybe you're talking about maybe the USDA just kind of down, downsizing the scope of the USDA, perhaps, and, and maybe that's a good thing. I know a lot of uh, ranchers that I talk to kind of lament the fact that it's very, 
you know, they would like to do this local direct to consumer type of situation, but USDA processors, USDA facilities make it cost prohibitive for a lot of people. So I, I just wonder what your thoughts on those two topics are. And then the other, well, I'll get into that later. Another, I wanted okay. to talk to you about soil. Yeah. I have a hard time keeping two in my head at the same time. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's start with the rural areas and there's two dimensions of that. And I've written fairly extensively recently, basically what we've been doing is colonizing our rural areas. It's economic colonization as opposed to political colonization, but the economic colonization is supported by political colonization. We basically have extracted all the resources. We use this industrial model of agriculture that I, that I talked about, specialized standardized consolidate. And now we've reached the point where the consolidation is not just big farms, but it's large corporations that own dozens or in, in the state of Nebraska, there's one investor that's putting in 125 or has asked for permits for 125 chicken CAFOs, big multiple thousand chicken operations to sell to Costco. And that's, a, that's, that's not a family farmer expanding by getting larger. That's a large outside investor. And Walmart and Costco both are integrating all the way back to the production level, all the way from retail back into the production level. And, and so what we have now is the, the, the benefits are not going even to the larger farmers that are still in rural areas or anyone else. The benefits are all being extracted out to the large corporations and the employment opportunities in rural communities disappeared along with the family farm and the declining number of farmers. And, and the expansion in farm size and this sort of thing. And as equipment got bigger, there's fewer farm machinery dealers and things of this nature. So we basically hollowed out our rural communities uh, to make cheap food. That's basically what we were talking about, cheap, quick, con quick convenient food. Uh, on the issue of, of how do we deal with the urbanization, let's say people have moved to urban areas, I think you can produce a certain amount of food within urban areas and, th and that's important. Urban farming is a big movement, but it's never going to feed a significant portion of the population. But the reason that's an important movement is it, it connects people with the earth and it gives people the knowledge of, of how food is produced and where it's come from and, and that it makes a difference in how it's produced, even if they only buy a small fraction, you know, at the local market or from a local CSA or whatever that's operating in the city. And I knew in Kansas City at one time there was one CSA that was operating, they were using people's backyards. That's the only farm they had was people's backyards and they would give the people a share of what they produced for using their backyards for this CSA garden. And there's other things going on in the city. I think another thing we're gonna need to do is as I suggested while ago about the green belts out around the areas. I think in many of these areas, we need to preserve uh, the farmland that's out in the vicinity of the cities. Many of these cities were built in highly productive farming areas because that seemed the logical place where you could produce food close to the city and things of that nature. And we're covering those up now. But I think there's ways of expanding as you expand out where you can preserve the most productive farmland and still locate more residences on those farms. And there's some of them that are there today, you know, rather than dividing a, you know, a thousand acres up to the 20, 50 acre lots or something and have one house on each of those, then you you take that and you put the houses in one place or you put, cluster the houses around it and then you continue to farm the best farmland and now you've got people that have houses close, relatively close to the city where they're in commuting distance, but they basically live on a farm. And, and so you could farm that land sustainably so it'd be a good place for people to raise kids. They wouldn't have to worry about pesticides and 
and all that kind of stuff and flies and odors and all that. You farm that land sustainably and you have cities around it. But we need to pay more attention to preserving the good farmland that we have because, you know, we need to begin to rely more on the natural productivity of the soil as opposed to the chemical fertilizers and pesticides. You know, I, I was uh, around at the time when we talked about, you know, peak oil a few years ago. We're talking about, okay, we're going <laughs> to run out of oil, and then all of a sudden we changed the laws again. And then once we changed the laws, then they started fracking, and now we've got the cheapest gasoline we've had in a long time. But eventually we are going to run out of cheap fossil energy. Right now, uh, fossil energy is only cheap in economic terms. We, we don't know what kind of environmental damage that we're doing, or maybe we do and just ignore it. In, in terms of what we're doing in order to get the cheap oil. But the important thing, if you're looking at the long run, eventually the, the systems that drive industrial agriculture today and the systems that allow for cheap transportation from all around the world, it, we're going to, that's not going to be cheap anymore. We're going to use that up. And we need to be thinking about trying to get our food systems back closer to our population centers, not just in rural areas or small towns but in cities as well. So we need to be planning ahead for, for the time when it won't be cheaper to ship something from California than it is to produce it, you know, 50 miles away from town. And another thing I think we could do is we could designate uh, land, good farmland as permanent farmland that, that will stay in farming. And those people who have inflated values for that land today, that they could be compensated by, by taxing away the increase in value from the changes in zoning when we take an area from its current farming designation and actually develop it. There's no reason the people that developed it didn't do anything to increase the value of the land. Society did it when it changed the zoning, when it changed the permission of what you could build there. So we could take away the value of the upzoning in terms of economic value and compensate people for the downzoning so that we get land, affordable land, uh, that's an agriculture that's good agricultural land for the future. Yeah, John, so much of the stuff that we've been chatting about so far kind of harkens back to, I believe it was Adam Smith who pioneered the term, like the invisible hand. Right. And uh, I think a lot of times people don't always recognize that, that that's more or less a reality in modern societies to a degree and I think it feeds into a lot of what we've been saying. Like when we look at just go back to what we were talking about, about the potential increase in productivity under a, um, a regenerative or sustainable agricultural model. Uh, the other thing to think about with on top of that pos the possible productivity increase, we also have a, a good reason to believe we would reduce the amount of food waste that we're currently undertaking. And I think right. Last I checked, it's, it's like a lot of the food that gets produced, like 40 to 50% of it doesn't right, even make, right. it to the, make it to your dinner table. And, and that's not necessarily like people throwing out half their dinner sure. so much as it is, you know, like a deformed carrot or potato that gets taken off the shelf because it doesn't look appealing enough or, you know, something goes bad in transport from one side of the country to the other. And I can't help but think like this idea of this invisible hand, the, re the more we can kind of close that, that gap between what we're consuming and where we're getting it from could be greatly uh, reduced if we just connect, reconnect ourselves to the food systems. And, you know, given this quite a bit of thought, like as um, a former school teacher, I always wondered like with our education system, why we wouldn't have more uh, educational 
opportunities for students to kind of see firsthand what it takes to grow food, produce food and that sort of thing by putting up some of these urban farms or small urban garden type things in, in schools and dedicating an hour a day to various levels of actually taking care of that thing and actually looking at what it takes to do this and reconnect ourselves right. to the food system to a degree so that our youth actually have an appreciation for that by the time they become adults. Right. Well, going back to the invisible hand again, and as a, an economist, I've, I've pretty well researched that whole thing and studied it wherever we are. But anyway, you have to recognize the conditions that existed at the time that Adam Smith wrote that. And it, the, the, the Wealth of Nations was published in the same year of the American Declaration of Independence, 1776, so the late 1700s. And at the time he was talking about, the, another quote is the butcher, the baker, the brewer doesn't bring our meat, bread, and beer as a result of their generosity or their altruism, but they do it as, as a matter of self-love, as a matter of doing what is in their interest as well. The visible hand has to do with a trader and international, basically the same justification. He was saying that you don't have to rely on their generosity, their altruism, or whatever, it, that that in pursuing their individual self-interest, they do what is in the best interest of society. But you think about society then. Those would have been small proprietors, the butcher, the baker, the brewer, small individual proprietors in a village that probably had two or three bakers or brewers or whatever, but they were small in scale. And, and the people who were buying from these individuals, they knew these people. And, and the, those people in that community, their reputation depended upon, you know, continuing to supply quality products or somebody else would do it. So the relationships there were personal. Uh, I would argue that the relationships were based on trust and confidence because he talked about in a competitive market, there's more than one, you know, there's different people there. And I would say under those conditions, which is similar to what you're, you and I are suggesting, we go back to more locally based systems, th then the invisible hand works. Now, over time, the economists kind of took Adam Smith's observations from the wealth of nations, and they turned it into to the conditions for economic competition in order for markets to work uh, like the invisible hand or like Adam Smith predicted. First, you have to have a large number of individual, relatively small uh, buyers and sellers. In other words, there has to be so many in the market that, that no individual buyer or seller can have an appreciable impact on the market price overall. It's called atomistic competition. But uh, if you're in that situation, then there's no opportunity for a producer to exploit the consumer by withholding, you know, a certain amount of profit because that particular producer would lose the, would lose the market. And, and there has to be an opportunity. The other thing is there has to be freedom of, or ease of entry and exit. In other words, if, if somebody has a better idea they have to be able to gain access to that market. The others can't be so big that they keep other new people out. And, and they have to be able to get out of the market whenever they're no longer producing something they can compete with, they're no longer producing something that, that fits the nature of their value. And, and the other one then is, is there has to be freedom of entry and exit. There has to be perfect or, or good information. In other words, you, you have to know in advance, be able to anticipate the value you're going to receive from something at the time you buy it. There can't be deceptive uh, trading practices, false advertising, even persuasive advertising. And that gets to the fourth condition. Uh, it's consumer sovereignty. We talked about food sovereignty, but one condition for the, 
for the invisible hand to work is the consumer, the buyer, and sellers have to be sovereign. They have to be free to make decisions to buy one thing rather than another, or buy or not to buy, things of that nature. And you have to have all those conditions in place. And, and the further you move away from those conditions, then you get into situations where you have buyers that are, are or sellers that are large enough, they begin to manipulate the market, they begin to force out their competitors, or they begin to consolidate more and more power. And then, then they're not having to function in the public interest. They're able to take profits out, and, and they're able to give those to the shareholders rather than to pass them on to the consumers. And, and they're, they're able to, to focus what they buy. And we see this in agriculture. The only thing that you can get into that large industrial food system are things that fit that specialized, standardized model. That's what we saw with the, what I call the industrialization of organic. We took something that was very diverse and spread out. And we said, okay, we specialize, we, we'll standardize, and then we can force it into that. So when you move away from those competitive traditions, then you get large sellers, you get corporations that we have today able to manipulate that market so that you're no longer serving the interest of the customer. So we don't have the conditions that it would require for a free market economy. We certainly don't have consumer sovereignty. You know, if you tried to argue that we in this country need everything that we buy, that we actually need that, but we get coerced into it because we want to be in style or we want to do this or that. Well, that's all the persuasive advertising that's coming in. I was in merchandising advertising when I worked for Wilson Packing Company, and I knew what, what we were doing even at that time. And I read over the years, I think we made a big shift to somewhere in the 40s or 50s when the big ad agencies started hiring PhD psychologists to tell them how to manipulate consumers' minds. You know, people don't think they're manipulated, but we get coerced into doing certain things that we don't really want to do. So I, my argument is, is that we're not meeting any of those conditions. But back to your second point, if we go more to more localized situations where we know each other, we know about each other, we feel a common commitment to our, to our community as a whole, then we begin to get closer to the conditions that Adam Smith saw when he was doing this in 1776. I think Adam Smith's observations were, were right, but I think it's, it's totally un, unprofessional and unethical to, to make claims that the conditions under which Adam Smith talked about the invisible hand apply to today's market economy. There is simply so little resemblance between the few. I think Adam Smith would turn over in his grave if he knew what, we, what was being done in his name today among economists. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it, gets, it gets a lot, a lot more difficult, I think, when you scale up to where we are today, for sure. And, um, you know, I want to pivot a little bit. Uh, you know, we've talked to, like Sean mentioned, Joel Salatin, Alan Savory, Bobby Gill from the Savory Institute, and, and other ranchers as well about some of these topics. And one that's come up a lot of times, too, is just... Uh, this kind of aging of the American farmer, where I think the, the average age farmer today is like around 60 years old. And uh, when you look at the health of a particular industry, usually they can look at kind of how those average ages are in terms of whether new people are interested in even coming into it. So you don't have to look far to realize that, you know, farming as a viable trade for a lot of people seems to be either undesirable or unapproachable. And I would argue, and I'd be curious what you would say, it, that it's more of an unapproachable thing than anything. Uh, 
so is there, what role, I guess, do we as a society or does the government play in getting people, young people excited or able to go after a career in farming? Is this something that requires policy changes? Is it an educational reform or what, what kind of things are, are necessary for us to kind of get some youth involved into this movement? Well, first of all, let me talk about the, the age of the farmers where you started here. Uh, we've been talking about how old the farmers were in my whole professional career for the last 30, 40 <laughs> years. We're talking about how old farmers were. But the thing is, if you have fewer and fewer people are making a living on the farm, you don't need as many farmers. So if the sure. old farmers retire, they're just not being replaced. So people say, well, we're not going to have farmers for the future. But anyway, the more important question is how do we make it possible for those young people who want to farm? And I've run across a lot of them. I speak at conferences around the country and have over the years. And increasingly at these large conferences like the Upper Midwest Organic Grower Conference or the Equal Farming Conference in California or Pennsylvania Association of Sustainable Agriculture, Southern Saga, a whole range of them. Increasingly, these have a lot of young people come in that, that are farming uh, or people that young people that want to farm, young couples with children. There's a lot of children running around at these conferences nowadays. There's at least two uh, major young farmer organizations. Uh, I think it's the National Association, National Coalition of Young Farmers, something like this. And then there's the Greenhorns up in the Northeast, which is another organization. So there's, there's a lot of people that want to get in. I think the, the primary obstacle is that everything from a policy standpoint, everything in the whole food system is geared toward these large industrial operations, which make it very difficult for the young farmers to get in on a scale, you know, where they can get it in. And as soon as they scale up, and this is another whole controversy, but as soon as you start to scale up, there's a real tendency to get sucked into that industrial system and you end up just another cog in a big wheel and eventually get broken off. But, but anyway, uh, what I think and what I've argued uh, during this political year, during the political campaigns. Of course, we see a lot of that here in Iowa as the presidential candidates kind of come across the state all the time, is, is we, need, we need what I call a, a family farm transition program that would be a program that would do similar to what we're doing for industrial agriculture. I don't see we have the power to change that, but we'd say, okay, for these smaller farmers, for farmers that want to transition out of industrial agriculture to sustainable agriculture, or young farmers that want to start in sustainable agriculture, then we as a society will bear or will share the risk of getting in or share the risk of transition in the same sense that we're sharing the risk for the large industrial farms. I would argue that that's nothing more than fair is to say, you know, people used to say, well, when you talk about sustainable agriculture and government programs for organic, you're saying the government's picking a winner. Well, I'd say the government had picked a winner and has for the last 50 years in industrial agriculture. I, I'm saying let's show the same support for the young farmers, people that want to transition, and, and the young family farmers that comes in. But there would be a significant difference between what I would be talking about here. I, I would set it up more as a, as a revenue or income, farm income insurance. That's what the parity programs were meant to be. It was meant to to provide economic security for family farmers that provided food security for the nation. And so I would say to these young farmers and transition farmers, you farm sustainably for, you know, which we need for the future food security of this country. And we will absorb the risk of the transition or we will absorb the risk of allowing you an opportunity to get started. So if you follow this plan or you lay out something 
uh, similar to the to the uh, uh, conservation security program that's already there, where you have environmental standards. People talking about adding carbon standards to that carbon sequestration standards or whatever. But but if you follow that path, then we will ensure you. I've I've talked about a tax credit that would offset any shortfall. But however you do it that your income during those years will be equivalent to kind of average family incomes within the area where you're farming or within where you are. I'm not going to give you, you know, millions of dollars. Like in this last bailout, there were some farmers like got $180,000 just in the trade uh, subsidies. So that sort of thing, nothing of that, of that nature, but to a young family say, if you want to start out and you want to become farmers, then we're going to bear the risk so that you've got a livable income during the years as you get established in farming. And we would also give them the same kind of tax credits and we give them the same kind of uh, government guaranteed loans and things of that nature that we give to the industrial farmers today. And we would ensure that it's on a scale that would allow them to get started. And you could be a transition farmer, you could be a a new farmer, but it would give people an opportunity then to get in and get started. I, I agree with you. I think there is are a lot of young people that want to start farms today that simply can't get access to land. They can't get access to the equipment. Uh, they don't have the knowledge of whatever, but we need a, a government program that moves us towards sustainability that does those particular things for them. And I think, you know, that's, that's where, uh, that's where I would go in terms of, uh, of trying to do this. But but having said that, when I talk to young farmers, I say, you know, you shouldn't get into farming. You shouldn't think about going into farming unless you really feel that farming is what you were meant to do with your life. In, in other words, I think real farming has is, is always been a calling. Uh, going back to kind of where I started, I think uh, family farming as a way of life was a calling. It wasn't just a way to, to make money. It, it wasn't just an economic means. It, it, it was a means of, of raising a family, of being someone, of making a contribution to society and the future of humanity, of taking care of, of being a whole person. And I think in, unless you're a young person and you feel that farming is the way I fulfill my purpose, it's, it's my mission, it's my calling, then you should do something else. But if, if we should make an opportunity of farming is your calling and you're willing to, to work hard and invest your money, then we as a society will support a, a transition that will take us away from industrial agriculture and take it to a more sustainable agriculture. And if you continue to provide share subsidies for the both, then it becomes a free choice. It, it's not a forced thing, but you're making it possible for people to do what they think they ought to do with their lives. Yeah, I mean, my personal experience living in Wisconsin and meeting a lot of kind of small local farmers was like, I never met one that hated the act of farming or loathed their job. They, right. there was oftentimes angst with like, you know, potential things going wrong or, you know, like where, where do you get your health insurance from and things like that when you're working for yourself versus working for a company that can provide some of those things. So, yeah, I think uh, I mean, I'm on the same page as you where I think there's a desire and a will that people would love to live that lifestyle. It's just the barrier to entry can sometimes be tough. And then once you're in it, it can be a risky endeavor. Right. It's, uh, it's risky, financially risky. It's also hard work and it's risky physically and that sort of thing. And I think it's clearly in the public interest that we make the transition or we allow the transition to happen for people that want to make it. And I think we need a fundamental change in farm policy that shifts us at, at least to equity 
for regenerative sustainable systems relative to the industrial system. And I think over time, it will transition agriculture from the uh, industrial to sustainable. I tell people one advantage of being old, you know, is I can remember when things weren't like they are today. <laughs> so I've lived through this whole transition to a sustainable food system. When I was growing up, they were still farming with horses when I was young. I used to ride the horse back and forth to the field. And pretty soon we got tractors and that sort of but I remember when they, they would turn out to little grade school where I went. It was a two-room school at that time. But they would let us go out and stand in the yard as the old steam engine come by that was going from one farm to another. It pulled the threshing machine. That was industrial agriculture back then. There weren't any supermarkets. It was just local grocery stores. There weren't any fast food restaurants or restaurant chains or any of that. Well, the point is, is that whole change and transformation took place in a period of about 50 years. A food system today isn't all that different than it was in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. So that big, that big transition just took place very quickly. And so we could, and that took place one farm, one consumer at a time, you know, making a different decision about what they were going to do in terms of how they were going to farm and making decisions about what you buy and where you buy it and things of that nature. And so my point is, is that we could easily transition to a food system that's just as different from the system of today as the system of today is to the system when I was growing up in the 1940s and early 50s. And we could make that transition within 30 to 40 years. Um, it's just a matter of providing the right incentives. And I think the time is right to move in that direction. And a big part of it was the change in policies. We had that fundamental change in policies in the 1970s. We went from providing economic security for family farms as a means of food security to promoting industrial agriculture as a means of reducing the cost of production and allowing and, and depending upon the markets to provide food security. We made that transition in policy and everything began to fall in place very quickly. If we can make those kind of changes again, we can transition out of industrial agriculture and into a regenerative sustainable agriculture system. Hey, John, let me, let me just talk about mechanistically about how to make that work because um, you know, and it sounds, you know, like, like the right thing to do. And people maybe listening to this podcast are going to say, oh, that sounds good. But what is the, what is the mechanism by which we make that transition? I mean, is it the farm bill that comes out every five years or how do we, how do we impact, uh, as a, as an individual, is it just making the decision to consume what we, what we consume, sending the message or how, what is the most, you know, effective way we, we could bring this about as a community? Well, we, we, need to, we need to do both. Uh, we need to vote with our dollars, as they say. But I think there's an important thing when you talk about voting with your dollars that, that unless you're reflecting kind of these social and ethical values of sustainability that says we, we feel a responsibility to taking care of the earth and taking care of each other, then you're not going to be willing to pay any sort of premium price, which you probably have to do today of some kind for the products that are produced in a sustainable way. So even when you're voting with your dollars, then it, it needs to be based on this sort of ethic of, of sustainability or regenerative or, or ecological health or agroecology or food sovereignty or some of the deeper principles need to be guiding those particular decisions. But you can't depend on just voting with the dollars. If, if you do, then it says those people who have the most money get to decide what kind of agricultural system we have, what kind of food system we have, because those are the ones with the most dollars to vote in the marketplace. So we have to make government work. We can't have sustainability 
unless we have both, we have to have people expressing their preferences through their purchase decision, but they have to be able, willing to express their ethical and social values through the public policies that come out of governments. And I've said many times, we can't have sustainability unless we make government work again. It's not working right now. And I've argued also that it's not a matter of simply tweaking the farm bill that we have now that comes out every five years. That whole process basically is dominated by the large agribusiness corporations that basically dictate much of what USDA done. You, you mentioned about USDA before. USDA basically has become a, a tool of the, of the industrial agricultural establishment. Now, it's not only the big for-profit corporations, but big farm organizations such as the commodity producers, I mean the pork producers, beef producers, corn producers, whatever, uh, the American Farm Bureau Federation, all of those are kind of pushing, pushing that particular agenda. But, but what we need is a fundamental transformation in farm policy. And, and one thing that I'm encouraged by, you know, I tell people I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful and become more hopeful, is that you have several of the presidential candidates this year that have come out with boldly different farm policies. May not have been everything in there that I might have liked to seen, but they're talking about a bold transformation. They're talking about restoring competition, like I talked about markets, restoring competition to agriculture. So break up the big corporations and take, you know, change that whole thing, move back more to a competitive situation. They're talking about a fair transition that would support a transition from industrial to sustainable agriculture uh, policies. And they're talking about uh, a supply management program for, for food security, where the government would take surpluses off the market and feed it back in to stabilize prices over the long run and, and things of this nature. And they're talking about strong rural economic development policies that are tied with their agricultural policies. So we see several of the candidates I don't want to support just one, but several of the candidates have come out with very strong agricultural policies. I, I even looked at, at Joe Biden's policy, who was, you know, a part of the previous administration, basically, that's continued to support industrial agriculture. He's got some pretty radical proposals there. And, of course, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, some of the others have, uh, you know, radical changes. That's what we need. We, we need a fundamental change, like I talked about before, where we begin to shift from relying on industrial agriculture for food security to transitioning to a regenerative sustainable agriculture as a means of providing food security. And once you make that fundamental shift like they did back in the 1970s, uh, then you will see that all the other policies begin to fall into place. But it'd be a, we need a transformation, not just a tinkering or tune-up. John, are you talking like, I mean, back, I can't remember when it was, maybe the 80s or maybe it was later than that when they big telecom companies, you know, it was like Bell and it was like uh, AT&T and they were, they were considered monopolies basically. And there was legislation passed to kind of break those companies up. And we see, you know, these big food production, production companies, Cargill, Tyson Foods, JBS, which is out of Brazil, you know, controlling the yeah. majority of our food supply is controlled by just a couple of companies. And would you be talking about sort of dismantling those companies to, to, to force this competition? Is that kind of where you're, you're seeing things going? I, I think that's a possibility, you know, that we would actually break up some of those big companies. I think there's, um, uh, you could, you know, one of the things is the vertical integration. You've talked about putting a moratorium on any new vertical integration. I think the place to start would be put a moratorium on any form of consolidation where you are, and then you figure out how to address the issue once you've stopped it getting worse, then you figure out how to make it better. 
But I think you could break up some of these companies and you could say, okay, if you're going to have all these plants in here, they're going to be operated in different areas. They're going to have different identities and they're going to respond to different boards of directors and things of this nature. And, and you could do that. It would be a radical move like the antitrust policies of the early 1900s. But, you know, Roosevelt came in and you had the, the various antitrust laws come in or it strengthened. They had some that they were there before. And there was major restructuring within the overall economy. And I think you could do that in the agricultural economy. You'd have to have the people supporting you. You'd have to have the support of government, but you'd have to have the people understanding that there's a fundamental problem with the way we're doing it now. And if we're going to create an alternative to the industrial system, then we need to break the grip of the large agribusiness corporations. I think you could do away with uh, the ability to vertically integrate through the system. Uh, we did that back in the early 1900s with the Packers and Stockyards Act. We said meat packers can't own cattle. Uh, they're still finding ways to get around that. But uh, they said back then that we're going to get away from this idea that retailers can control the whole system or packers can control the whole system, that each level within the system is going to be a separate market. Uh, we could do that sort of thing, and then the companies could divide themselves, and they would be smaller companies if they only had their resale segment or the processing segment. Their production segment would be separate. Uh, might be one logical way to separate them out. Um, but I think the other thing, too, would be to, to remove the subsidies. Over time, phase out the subsidies for these big industrial livestock and crop operations. If If you remove the the competitive advantage for the large production systems, then you can't support the large distribution and retailing systems. They, they, in order for them to gain the efficiency that they have and make the profits that they're making, that, that whole system ha has to be relatively large, uniform products that you're pushing through it. And if you all of a sudden you have a kind of a disintegration at the farm level with a lot of different producers producing different things and relying on local markets as well as moving them through the system, th then there's not going to be a capacity for these big industrial processors and distributors really to function as they're functioning now. And they would have to, I think if you took away the, the government programs that support are absorbing the risk of industrialization all through that system, that these operations might very well take themselves apart because there would be no economic advantage in them staying as large as they are today. In fact, it might be economically advantageous under a different set of public policies for them to, to, to divide up, or we could devise policies that would make it more economically advantageous for them to divide up than to stay consolidated. So there's a whole range of policy options once you accept that this is the mission, this is what we want to do, then there's a whole range of concepts and tools you know, that have been used during times. This isn't the first time that we've been in this situation in this country, as I mentioned before, late 1800s, early 1900s. We got in the, the same condition where the big corporations controlled the government, and big corporations were exploiting consumers and destroying the environment too, but we didn't know about it at that time. But uh, so we've been here before and, and there's some old tools, but old principles, and we could devise lots of new tools. All of the electronic technologies provide all sorts of new tools today that we could use to, you know, manage smaller operations more efficiently. If, if we were truly develop something approaching a competitive system, we, we might find that we could gain more efficiency out of smaller operations by applying, by applying the, the new communications and digital technologies within those systems. There's a lot of things that we can do on a smaller scale now that we couldn't do 50 years ago, but the large corporations 
or even 20 years ago, but the large corporations dominate the industry, don't want those kind of changes to take place. So I, think know, I think that's, uh, you know, I, and I think those points, you know, we've talked about, you know, we'll talk about with satellite imagery, you can, you can kind of figure out where appropriate to graze for regenerative cell agriculture. So, so there's all kinds of neat technology, you know, uh, electronic fence, you know, wireless fences are basically where remote collars on animals, all kinds of things you can do. But I think the point you bring up about the economic policy is so crucial because there's all these things that we want to do, but at the end of the day, it's going to be money that drives that. And I think it's like we, we talk about the concern about the soil, you know, I mean, and we, we might want to talk about that. You know, some people that say uh, you were going to run out of usable, you know, our, our soil only has about 60 more harvests before it's kind of depleted. But let me ask you about, you know, because a lot of people talk about let's end the subsidies. Let's let let's end the, the grain subsidies and you know, see what that does. What do you, I mean, there's going to be critics of that. What are the main criticisms going to be and what would your rebuttals be to that? Because there's people out there that are saying, you know, we do this for, for this reason. And if we end it, all kinds of disasters going yeah. to potentially ensue. So what do you, what are your thoughts on that particular? Well, I, I think there's a lot of people that are, that are caught up in this system or caught in the system that, that really don't want to be in it, but they will defend it. For example, I talked about being able to go in and borrow money, a million, two million, three million dollars to build a confinement animal feeding operation. Okay, once you've made that decision, it's a government guaranteed loan, but once you've made that decision, you're basically locked into that operation for the next 20 years in terms of paying it off. And they don't know it yet, but it's before it, that 20 years is up, they're going to have to upgrade those facilities and borrow more money. But, but you get in order to keep their contract. But, but you get into the system. Now, what are you going to do if you're five years into this 20-year contract and somebody like you or me comes in and says, well, do you like this or you have some justification? They're going to, they're going to believe, want to believe every justification they hear that the animals are treated better. This is more productive. We have to have this provide food for the world, that we're going to keep food prices down, whatever, because you want to believe that because you've got your future all invested or you've gone out and you've inherited this uh, farm that's a thousand acres and you're you're farming another thousand acres of rented land and you've got the equipment that goes with that big operations you've got hundreds of thousands or million dollars of equipment that's that's oriented toward that so what are you going to do you you're basically going to defend that because you've got that tremendous in, investment involved in it and we've talked about you know what i would call the myths that they use in defense that we have to have it to feed the world that our animals are actually treated better here. We didn't talk about that and a whole range of, of things. And, and I, I, we've got people that are very responsible farmers that I think would like to get out of it. But uh, they, they use the, uh, the rationalization. Um, they use the rationalization, you know, because they, they've made the investment and stayed into it. Now, I didn't want to go back and address what you talked about before when you said, okay, it's ultimately money that drives this. Well, that's, that's the fundamental problem. I can tell you as an economist, basically, virtually every problem that we're talking about is the consequence of giving economic value, giving profitability, priority over the basic social and ethical values that underlie sustainability, over our responsibility to care about each other, make sure that everybody has food, provide food security, over our responsibility to take care of the earth, not only for the benefit of people that live in the environment today, a safe and clean environment, for the benefit of those of future generations. We've allowed, compromised all of those in terms of economics. So we do things that 
maximize profit or you know make it profitable or whatever and then if it doesn't get in the way of our social values then we'll exercise those social values but if we have to compromise one for the other then we'll compromise those values you may end up in a community uh, many of these large farmers have few if any friends left in the community well at one time those relationships among neighbors among friends in the community was the most important part of living in a community life but they've sacrificed those relationships, particularly in these large confinement animal feeding operations for the sake of economic interests in, in building this industrial operation. And in many cases, I think farmers have been misled into thinking, well, this kind of system, we've got new technologies, we can protect the land, we can protect the soil. We, we're just totally polluting the soil in Iowa with nitrogen and phosphates and a whole range of things. And we know it's coming from agriculture. We know it's coming from over application. But but the farmers are still being told, well, we got new technologies, it's smart farming, it's uh, precision agriculture is taking all this stuff away, and so on. So there's all this rationalization in order, because it's more profitable to do this. It's easier, you can do it on a larger scale, and it's more profitable. My whole point is, is if we're going to bring about a fundamental change, we have to recognize that economics, that money, was never meant to be the goal or the objective of farming or doing anything else in life. That, that's simply the means by which we can do other things. All, all a market is is an impersonal means of meeting our need. You know, we can go out into nature and meet our needs self-sufficient by ourselves. We don't have a market. If we can meet our needs simply by trading with other people in our communities or within families, then we have kind of a social market, but we don't have what we today call a market. So what, what a market does, it allows us to meet certain needs that we can't meet for ourselves or from our personal relationships in this impersonal transactions. Uh, by using the market, we can buy stuff from people all around the world. We can sell stuff to people. So, so that's, that's what the market is intended to do, a means of allowing us to achieve a higher level of living, to, to do more with our lives, to more effectively carry out our purpose here. But, but money was never meant to be the purpose. And, and when it becomes the purpose, then you begin to compromise the social relationships. You compromise the, the political, the government processes, and the whole thing when money begins to drive it. And you compromise those, um, those, those deeper values of, of deciding what's an ethical, moral, what's a right way to farm and a right way to live. You, you begin to compromise those. And so if we're going to deal with sustainability, we've got to reorient, we've got to reprioritize and say there that we're dealing with nature that's unchangeable and the fundamental laws of nature are there. We don't know exactly what they are, but the fundamental laws of, of nature are there. So that's, that's the biggest priority. And there's, there's basic principles of human nature. One of the most important things in our overall quality of life is that we have some sense of purpose and meaning, that we feel that our life is meaningless, that somehow what we're doing is worthy and it's right and it's good. So we, ha we have to have that sense for a quality of life. And next comes our relationships within families and within friends and so on. That gives us that desirable quality of life now, but also that inner sense of, of worth and well-being. And the economy is simply the means of doing that. And that's what I'm talking about with sustainability, that we change the food system first because it's the right thing to do. It's, it's necessary to function in harmony with nature. We have a human responsibility as caretakers of the nature as well as members of the natural community 
that we have that responsibility and our life is made better when we fulfill that responsibility. It comes from that. And then it comes from let's build communities of people because we're not just isolated individuals. Our purpose is interrelated with all of the other people around us that we affect and we're affected by. And then the economy then is a means of allowing us to do that. And so if you're a farmer, you have to be able to make a living economically, but that's not the purpose of farming. The purpose of farming is something beyond that, and the economic part is something that allows you to do what you want to do on that farm. As I said before, I think farming is a calling, and that's what I was talking about. Yeah, and if I can uh, attempt to summarize, I think it it seems to me anyway that like the way we kind of have our current economy structured is this kind of endless growth mindset right. where we give the corporations the power and flexibility to pursue their goal, which ends up being just, I need to grow, I need to progress. And that's the, uh, that's a faceless organization that, that we're funneling that priority into. Right. And it oftentimes comes at the expense of the worker or the person who's right. trying to, you know, live within the context of that. And it comes at the expense of the environment because there's no, like you said earlier, there's no incentive for a faceless organization to curtail its profits to help the planet 30 years from now. Whereas the average worker, who has kids, especially, you know, they, they would like the planet to be in a good place in 30 years. So uh, it seems like it's almost like a restructuring of the outlook of the economy where we want these markets to be serving the people versus serving a faceless organization. Right. I, I agree with you. And, and what we've done is, in my opinion, we have substituted uh, economic well-being, income, wealth, economic growth. We've substituted that for, for the overall purpose of, of being here. We you know, I, I think it goes back to the idea of the enlightenment. When we came out of the enlightenment, we said, okay, things have to be logical, observable, provable, replicable, you know, the whole idea of the scientific method. Well, if you can't prove something, then it doesn't really exist. It's just imaginary, whatever. Well, you can't prove that there's any purpose to life. Uh, it simply can't be proven. It comes from somewhere else beyond our observation or beyond whatever. There's no no way that you can logically prove that life has any purpose. But intuitively, we know that it does. Otherwise, you know, why would you get up in the morning? But again, why wouldn't you? you know, it doesn't really make any difference. There's no way to distinguish right and wrong because there's no right because there's nothing in particular that you're supposed to do. So I think we know intuitively that life has to have purpose to make sense. And so we kind of rationalized with the help of the economist along the way and saying, okay, if we have money, you can change that for a lot of different things. You don't have to decide yet what you need it for. But if you have more money, you can do more all kinds of different things. And so we said, well, maybe until I figure out what my purpose is, I'll just try to accumulate money. And if I figure it out, then I, I'll, know, I'll be able to do something with it. Well, I think over time, then money became, kind of became the purpose. The general assumption is, you know, if employment's high, the GDP's growing, uh, stock market's going, then people are well off. Well, there's nothing in the data on public health or mental health or or civility within society, or expenditures on healthcare, or legal costs, or crime, or any, there's nothing else that indicates that that's work. Hasn't worked in the past, it's not working now, but we're still bought into this idea that if you want to get elected president, then you've got to make the economy grow. And if you don't make the economy grow, then you may not get reelected. And and you go out on the campaign trail, you've got to talk about jobs. You've got to talk about jobs. That's what people are concerned about. Well, we, we've substituted this idea of economic growth for, econo for human progress. And it's simply not true. And until we realize 
that we need to focus on human progress, that we need to focus on human well-being, and, and that, that, that that is a higher purpose than just the economy. The economy is an important means of doing these things. Without the economy, we couldn't do a lot of things that we have the capacity to do with the economy, but it has to be the means to this larger end. And I think that we just lost sight of it. As long as we're preoccupied with this economic growth, we're, we're, we're continuing to pursue an unsustainable uh, economic and unsustainable uh, society as we move forward. Because eventually you, you do run out of resources and eventually you do pollute the earth. The earth has limited capacity, even when you consider solar energy, it takes a lot of solar energy to keep these other things here alive. And there's only a certain amount of it you can capture here on earth and make it useful. And the Earth has a limited capacity to assimilate the waste that we create inevitably when we do anything with the resources of the Earth that's useful. There's always waste involved in it. Both of those are limited capacities. Eventually you hit the wall and eventually you fall. But as long as we continue in that direction, I can't tell you when it will happen and what it'll be like. There's a lot of people that think we've already gone beyond the edge of being able to come back from it and that a civilizational collapse is inevitable. And I've written, I say, I don't think it's inevitable unless we continue doing what we're doing. Um, and I don't think we have to continue doing what we're doing. So I remain, I remain hopeful. But the basic problem that we're talking about, and if, if the only solutions that we can come up with are solutions that require economic incentives for change, we haven't changed that fundamental problem. I'm not saying we shouldn't do any of that, but we need to recognize that as long as we assume that people won't change unless it's more profitable for them to do it or they can earn more money doing it, we're just reinforcing the root cause of the problems we're trying to solve. Awesome, Sean. Do you have anything else you want to chat about? I think you've about downloaded my brain. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been great, John. It's been wonderful. It's a very good, interesting perspective. You know, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, kind of a, a critique on society in general. I mean, we, we are wrapped up in, in a sort of a very materialistic society and, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, I guess with, with age comes perspective and you see what's, what's important. And what may not be and when you reflect back on life it's not the accumulation of toys or things like that uh as as many people seem to be caught up in and, and it just continues to get worse i mean we just we just see that uh I, i'm glad that you're hopeful and and i i think there's signs that, that there is some people that want change but at the same time there's you know you can probably see it as well as i can over your lifetime the, the trend has certainly been in the opposite direction you know we're getting more and more driven by materialistic stuff and economic stuff and so it's the question becomes is there is there going to be some catastrophic tipping point uh or event that's going to that's going to force our hand or are we going to sort of look into the crystal ball and, and make make a change and i, I don't know the answer I, I wish well I, I have people ask me that question all the time and i say you know first of all if we <clears throat> if we don't change uh, then we will reach that point and it will collapse. But I don't think we have to. And again, this is more philosophical than anything else. But if, if you look at the human being relative to the other species, and I think we're just one member of that big living community, but probably the thing that separates us most is this mental capacity, this brain up here. We have, you know, other plants, other animals, and even plants can learn from experience. You know, they reach for the sun or whatever. Or they, you can train this sort of thing or they learn from 
uh, their mother or whatever, if they're a puppy or wolf or whatever. Uh, but they learn in that way. But, but we can sit here, we have this mental capacity to sit here and talk about these issues and to, and to anticipate things out here in the future that, that no human has ever experienced. We can say logically through this, if we continue to do this and this has this impact on the earth and this impact on the atmosphere or whatever, it, then that collapse is inevitable. And, and I ask myself, why do we have that capacity? Why, why have we been given as human beings this, this mental capacity to anticipate a future that, that, that nobody has ever experienced? We, we intuitively kind of put all the pieces together and this is what we see. And I say we were only given this, this is my opinion, we were only given this gift because we were meant to use it. We don't have to. We're not forced to, but, but we have that so that we can use it so that we can mitigate it, put it off, avoid it, or whatever. But I think that's what we're meant to do. And I think that's part of the purpose of all of us is, is to use that capacity to look ahead and, and moderate, mitigate, whatever. You know, the, everything always moves in cycles, but it doesn't necessarily have to move in disastrous falls off the cliff and then climbing back from the depths. I think we'll inevitably go through a cycle and it may not be comfortable, but I just think, I think that's what we're given. And another thing that keeps me hopeful is if, if we think about the things I'm talking about from an individual personal level, I think to almost everybody it makes sense. We realize that up to a certain point, material well-being is important. And there's studies that show that in, in developing countries that up to about ten to fifteen thousand dollars a person, there's significant improvements in quality of life as you meet the basic necessities for healthcare and food and housing and things. But beyond that point, there's no relationship be between more wealth, more income, greater happiness, well-being, satisfaction. Beyond that, it's about relationships within families, communities, friends kind of a sense of being a part of something bigger and this whole sense of purpose and meaning that our life is worthwhile, that it has worth, that it makes a difference what we do and what we don't do. And, and I think if you think about it, almost everybody knows that intuitively as an individual, that's what makes life good is your friends, your sense of satisfaction, having done something worthwhile, regardless of what somebody else thought of it. And, and if, all we have to do then, as I talk about, it, all we have to do is be fully human. We, we need to reflect what we know individually in our relationships within our community and the economy and government in the whole of society and the whole of economy. If our economy reflects its appropriate place within us, which is that part of us that is selfish, that part of us that is self-seeking, and that's an important part of who we are in terms of staying alive and, and surviving and thriving and that sort of thing. But, but we have to recognize that the economy is that part of us, but there's this other part of us, this, this social part of us that says we have to be good friends. If we want to have friends, that we have a responsibility to contribute to our community because we benefit from the community and, and that we have something to do with our lives, that we have some purpose for being here. And so I, you know, I just think that if we begin to think about that as kind of the, what we need to move toward as opposed to just relentless economic growth, then I'm hopeful that we can make a transition without a major civilizational collapse, that we can make a significant civilizational adjustment. And 
you know, I recently wrote a short piece that uh, I don't know if they're going to publish it or not on how much is enough. And I said, you know, how do you know when you've got enough money? How do you know when you've got enough wealth or your income's enough? And my argument was that economics is just a means. So you have to decide what you want to do. What is it you want to do with your life? Now, if you have enough money to do what you think you ought to be doing in your life, you've got enough. You don't need any more. If you spend time, you know, trying to make more money, then you're, you're going to be distracted from what you ought to be doing instead of making money. Uh, but if you don't know what you want to do with your life, then you'll never have enough money because you say, well, I might figure it out later and I might need more. So I'll just focus on making money. <laughs> and <laughs> if you do that, you'll never have enough. But once you figure out what it is you want to do with your life, if you've got enough, that's the reason I retired 20 years ago and continue to do what I do. I knew I could live on my University of Missouri retirement. I had federal retirement back in those days for extension. I could live on that, and that would free me to do what I thought I needed to do with the rest of my life, however long or short that might be. And so I'm speaking, you know, from personal experience. It's one of the best decisions I ever made. I encourage people to, you know, figure out how much is enough. When you've got that, then focus on doing what you want to do with it. Wise words indeed. Um, John, where can our listeners find you if they're interested in checking out more of what you're up to and what you're doing? What's that? I said, where can our listeners go if they want to find more information about you, like your website, social yeah. media, anything like that? Yeah, I have a, I have a, a personal website that I put up where I can put, you know, different reflections and blog pieces and post papers and things of that nature. It's, it's johneicher.com, J-O-H-N-I-K-E-R-D.com. And if you go to there, then there's also a link on johneicher.com to my University of Missouri website. Uh, I still, the university still maintains my website there, and I put my papers on, presentation papers I put on my university website. But the easiest thing is to go to johneicher.com. The university site's a little bit more strung out. But if you go to the link for the university site, that'll take you to the University of Missouri site, and there's actually hundreds of papers on there, uh, along with a lot of other information. So... Uh, between those two things, and then also there's quite a few things on YouTube. If you just go on and, and search for John Eichert on YouTube, you'll see several things that will come up there. So anyhow, I'm always glad to share my ideas and my thoughts. And, you know, if somebody else disagrees with me, that's fine. I've changed my mind a lot in my lifetime. So, you know, I may change it again one of these days. I'm not going to be one that apologizes and have to change my mind. I, I tell people, you know, if you get to be my age and you look back and you say, I wouldn't do anything different, you were either perfect or you didn't learn much. <laughs> and it's probably the latter. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking some time out of your day, John, and coming on the show. I, I think our listeners will be, be impressed with some of the stuff you've shared with us. Okay. Very good. Thank you. If you get, get something up you want to share links on, then I'll, I'll uh, share the links on my, I also have a Facebook page. I'll share the links on my Facebook page and on my websites. Cool. Yeah, we'll let you know when it goes up. Okay. Yeah, John, yeah, John thanks. Good. Wonderful discussion. Appreciate having you on. Thank you. Appreciate okay. it. Good luck to you. Keep up okay. the good work. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit, for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.